0: Well, we've just been hearing about difficult parts of our history on Drive Time. How do we tell that difficult history to our children now that we're at that most uh, difficult phase to, uh, to deal with in the decade of commemoration the Irish Civil War? We need all our skills as historians and storytellers to tell it like it was and not through the prism of hate. This is the task being undertaken by Branagh Theatre Company in Galway in the form of a play called The Table by Christian O'Reilly and an accompanying graphic novel called The Irish Civil War drawn and written by my next guest Maeve Clancy we have some images from the graphic novel and the photographs and drawings on which they are based to tweet so I'll I'll, I'll mention those as we're chatting to Maeve, to Maeve at RTE Arena if you want to see those images but Maeve uh, is joining us from our Galway studio this evening let's begin Maeve with the Branner play The Table because the, the idea of the graphic novel grew from there tell me a little bit about the play first of all
1: Uh, so uh, good evening John so the play is about a family who have this table which is kind of part of their history and I suppose it's a sacred table to them Um, and basically a kind of trick is played on them by a landlord and they have they kind of make a deal which splits the family in two so the play is an allegory on the civil war I guess Mm -hmm. and throughout the play they kind of have difficult decisions to make and they end up having to take different sides and figuring out how to resolve that really by the end of the play
0: and I guess sitting around a table and negotiating a settlement in a family is just like sitting around a table and negotiating a treaty and then subsequently debating that self-same treaty uh, as was done during the Irish Civil War. How, why did you approach then this graphic novel idea? What What did you want to add to the play by doing this, Maeve?
1: So I was attached to the project as a set designer. I do a lot of branner set design. And because I also write and draw comics, when they came to me with the play, I just talked to them a little bit about how it might make sense to explain the historical backdrop. So the play is an allegory. So it's it's a, a story based on the Irish Civil War, um, but you don't necessarily need to know the Civil War story. But I thought it would add an awful lot to the play if having seen the play, if visitors could also get a small comic book about the Irish Civil War that would mm. explain the historical backdrop to the the writing of this play. Um, I had just come off doing uh, a comic for the Nerve Centre in Derry um, and they've done a series of graphic novels or comics in and around the decade of commemorations and I had worked on their last one which is about partition. Um, I only drew that one, now I didn't write it. But I realised through making that comic that this part of the history is so complicated it's Mm. very hard to follow exactly what happened. Um, also because it had so many repercussions for the next 100 years. And I thought it would be really worthwhile to bring the total historical background um, into the play um, so that people who've seen the play can, can read this afterwards and yeah. then look at the history and, and maybe think about it.
0: And you think is there something, given that you had done it uh, previously, as you said, in Derry, in and around partition, is there something specifically about the graphic novel or the comic book form that, that opens up history, maybe, and difficult topics in a way that other types of writing don't.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're telling stories with pictures and words. Also, with this particular one, I managed to do it completely by using only archival imagery. So there's no image in the book that wasn't drawn from an actual photograph of the time. Um, and I found that that kind of keeps you on the straight and narrow that you can only use something you really can reference. There's no making anything up. Any, any kind of speech in the book is taken from actual quotations. So there's very little few quotes in it. And um, some of the ones I did use would have been from the treaty debates, which you can find, yeah. you know, online on the RT site. So um, I find that it it allows you to tell stories in a slightly filmic way. Comics really work a little bit like a film or a storyboard um, and they allow you to tell them in a filmic way but also with comic pacing. So I actually have found, I've done a few historical graphic novels and I find them a really effective way of telling a reasonably complicated story um, Hmm. in a clear and concise way.
0: And and the fact that all of the images that you have drawn in the comic are actually taken from photographs, means that there's an historical accuracy involved, certainly in the presentation of the images, that that's important in the telling of the story. Let's tweet... uh, In fact, what we're going to do is tweet the photograph and the the subsequent drawing, as you have realised it at the same time at RTE Arena, if you want to see these images that Maeve Clancy is is talking about. The first one that we're tweeting here... uh, Maeve, is uh, the, the ratification of the treaty in uh, Dublin's Mansion House. Mm-hmm. Uh, picture up at the top uh, we'll see there, maybe you would describe what's in the picture and what you wanted to uh, portray then in the, the drawing underneath it.
1: I suppose, I mean, a lot of the the photographs I worked with, I used Uh, most of the photo, um, a lot of these archival photographs, they're very good quality. So somebody has already composed a really good image and if they've lasted and they're being used again and again, they're often a great depiction of a moment in history. Um, And this is just a great shot almost from overhead of kind of, it's not a final debate, but people voting, you can see Arthur Griffith, you can see various characters in Mm. it kind of sitting back as the votes are being cast. And it looks like, I suppose it looks quite sedate, but it's quite a a serious moment in our history where the treaty debates have happened, de Valera has already resigned, Arthur Griffith's in, and um, they're they're ratifying this treaty that has caused problems and is only going to cause more problems. So it, it looks... It looks like something very sedate, but actually it's quite a pivotal moment for what is to come.
0: Yeah. And also uh, in both the, the picture and indeed in your own drawing of it, there is this sense, there's there's an ominous or a feeling that there's a, a kind of resigned look on the faces of many of those sitting in the seats in the mansion house that they know, yeah, we're ratifying this, but we're, we're opening up a major can of worms, which of course would be... The full-blown civil war. Talk to me then about the medium and the the way in which you've drawn uh, drawn the the the, the 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 comic book pictures themselves, Maeve.
1: Um. So I suppose I would just draw them in what is my own drawing style, which is uh, I don't know. I use an awful lot of line and crosshatch. I draw all of my drawing. I would do from reference anyway. And um, sometimes when doing historical comics, I have used stylized um characters as in they would have a slightly more stylized look because mm. this one contains so many historical figures um I just didn't think it worked I tried it at the very beginning and if they were in any way cartoonized it just didn't seem to work with the subject matter and also the fact that these some of these characters are really large figures kind of historically. It actually worked better to just depict them as they were you know and there's obviously there's great images of Collins and De Valera, but also I mean archively I was able to use the British Pathé um reels which mm. are online um, and I have an image of Collins at uh, Arthur Griffith's uh, graveside which is from a little film reel so what I find really interesting about those is you can actually see moving footage of these people and you get a little idea of their character because it's yeah. totally different to see a photograph of a person and see moving footage you see. I mean, there's footage of Collins even. I didn't use it, but Collins at somebody's wedding and he's, he's yeah. joking. and jo- You know, you can see his personality come out a lot. So the British Pathé reels are so interesting for anybody interested in this um, period of Well, history. in fact,
0: let's tweet that very image, the, the one of Collins at the, the graveside of Arthur Griffiths from the Pathé. Yeah, and even up in the corner of the photograph, we see uh, British Pathé up there. And then obviously, down in, in your drawing underneath, We get the the text. Who who gave us the text? Collins was among those at the graveside. He had worked closely with Griffith through the treaty negotiation and formation of the provisional government. Together, they had made a strong team. Where did the text come from, there, Maeve?
1: Where the text? That's just from research. Mm -hmm. I mean, I um, we I started off with. I suppose, looking at kind of curriculum material on the Irish Civil War because this was for young people and that's, I know, when they're writing the table, that's some of the material they used and then I would just use that to refer back to to make sure my timeline was correct and then it's just a lot of reading. Um, there's a great George Morrison book on the whole um, period of the, I suppose, that 10 years, what we now call the decade of commemorations um, and I use that book an awful lot. It's actually a photo book but it has a lot of written text in it and that's an excellent mm. reference um, book. So a mixture of books that I would have, um, online uh, material and then cross-referencing back to um, whatever source material you have, like quotes from some of the debates and that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> let's let's tweet a, another image now again. We'll see the picture at the top and we'll see the, the drawing from the graphic novel underneath and this is uh, Sir Henry Wilson who was assassinated on June the 22nd, another very important moment uh, in, in the history of this country. Um he in particular it struck me because he has such a you know stare out at the camera and the the very uh, formal moustache that fits very well into a comic book almost kind of caricature. You don't have to do too much to caricature him, do you?
1: Absolutely. I mean, look, older people are easier to, to draw because there's more lines on their hmm. face. He has a particularly strong. There's a really just a really great portrait of him. I was able to find. And um, his death is really interesting because um when he was mur- he was murdered by two ira men in london on his own doorstep he considered himself irish i think his family seat was in longford but he was considered i think collins called him a violent orange partisan and collins was put under pressure after his assassination to um to get the ira at its four courts it later transpired i didn't put it in the book because it's not totally proven but it seems likely collins ordered his murder actually. Um, that's what uh, many historians seem to think. But so it almost started the kind of fully engaged civil war is the death of of Henry Wilson. But he was also murdered by two men who were veterans of World War One, who'd fought in the British Army. So it's just the, the history is so convoluted yeah. and mixed up at that time, you know.
0: Well, it is interesting. I, I, I went through it today. Um, is it 60, 65 pages in, in total, I think, we have in, in the novel itself? In the book, 48. 48. But it's not even as many as I thought then. Uh, and, and it covers everything, in, in, you know, in, in a kind of a snapshot type of way that the, the photographs really are, sorry, the, the drawings really help the telling of the story. Um, You do have to keep the pace moving along, even though it's history, don't you?
1: Absolutely. I mean, to try get it into 48 pages was very tight. Um, And in fact, the plan is after this iteration of the book, I think I'm going to make it a little longer, even just with perhaps some sections at the end to explain some of the kind of contextual things going on. Um, I got one of my nephews, Kai, to proofread it for me. Um, And my brother, he's 11. And so my brother told me that he was asking him questions for about a week afterwards. And he said some of the questions were really interesting because it was about like what was in the treaty what was the boundary commission so things I've mentioned and tried to explain very quickly but they could really do with a further explanation for someone who wants to look further absolutely we'll
0: we'll finish with one final tweet at RTE Arena and this is of uh, the the piece of text is once again Dublin came to a stand said for a state funeral and it is the state funeral of, of Michael Collins it struck me that in some ways the drawings hold more emotion than the photographs do you feel that yourself?
1: Absolutely. And I think when, I mean, I write by writing and drawing at the same time. And really, I'm trying to get a flow, use the photographs to get a flow through the material. But whatever you feel does end up going into the drawings. Mm. And I found that doing those state funerals, it's very sad. I mean, between Griffith and Collins is 10 days, I think, um, between those two deaths. And it's incredibly sad to think that those two people were gone. Yeah, And then and suddenly is, things had to move on.
0: Yeah, and you see the the terrible reality of men who had fought together and people who had fought together. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they're now executing each other. You know, it, it, there is a, a terrible sadness and emotion in that which really comes across. Could you get my hands on a copy of it? If, if I go to the play, I'll get a copy when I go to the play. Is it possible to get one if you're not at the play? Or will that be this new iteration with the little bit added?
1: It will be the new iteration. So, um, so far, I was just concentrating on getting it complete for the play. Mm. So everybody who goes to the play gets a copy of this on their way out the door. And then the plan is to add a little bit more to it um, maybe get a bit of feedback from some of the audience at the play and see if there's anything else they think I need to put yeah. in. And then the, uh, the plan is to kind of have it for sale later in the year.
0: Well, listen, um, thanks for sharing your, your thoughts on it with us this evening, Maeve. I really enjoyed looking at it this afternoon. That's Maeve Clancy. And Branagh Theatre Company's The Table will be in Galway at the Town Hall Theatre from the 14th through until the 18th of February. It transfers then to the Peacock Stage of the Abbey Theatre for the company's National Theatre debut. And that runs from the 1st through until the 18th of March, exclusive of St Patrick's Day. And the official opening night is th- Thursday the 2nd of March, 7pm. You can find find out full details on branner that's I-E. when an armed gang raided the brinksmatt security depot near heathrow airport in 1983 they came in search of roughly 3 million pounds in foreign currency They drove away with £26 million sterling, that is, in gold bullion, which was at the time the biggest heist in history. But that's just the starting point for the gold six-part BBC drama that tells the story of what happened next. Declan Burke has been watching it for us and he's with me in studio now. I mean, 1983, the Brinks-Matt robbery, it was like kind of... They went in. They were looking for big money, but boy, they got way more than they had had planned for. Um, that that's a big part of the story here. This the fact that they they kind of find themselves with what do you do at twenty six million
2: well, uh, pounds sterling worth of d- gold? Absolutely, Sean. I mean, the, the the series opens with the actual raid itself, and it seems to be a well a well run job in hmm. commas. Um, but as you say, they were there for foreign currency, and and this three tons of of bullion gold had it was just supposed to be there overnight. They <laughs> hadn't even bothered to put it in the vault, was and it?
0: There wasn't enough room in the vault. There for wasn't it or something. enough
2: room in the vault, and. And, and and actually, the, the raiders couldn't get into the vault to get at the currency, and they were going, "Oh, what do we do? Oh, hold on a minute, what's that in the corner?" So, but you're absolutely right; they are presented with an opportunity that they don't, they haven't expected, and and don't have the tools to dispose of. You don't just fence three tons of mm. gold uh, down at your local hooky uh, jeweler. So, what do you do? And and that is the the ripple effect of that accidental. Heist, if I can put it that way, really, you know, it, that, that runs through the entire six episodes of the gold. Yeah.
0: And mm. so we, we, we get to know the robbers very quickly uh, and who they are and, and they're kind of trying to work out what they're going to do with the, this gold. But then we get to know a number of fences, uh, as in people who can get the money for this gold for them and those around them that might be able to supply that money. That's a very murky world that crosses class
2: boundaries, that crosses all sorts of boundaries. And, and, and again, makes this a terrific series because at, at both ends of the story, this is a classic cops and robbers story. A heist has, been, has taken place. A lot of money has to be caught. The, the, the raiders have to be caught. So therefore, we have the crooks, the robbers, and then we have the cops on the other side. And uh, in the middle then, it's all the middlemen. And probably the most fascinating is a guy called Kenny Noy who's played by Jack Loudon, kind of cockney, wide boy made good, started out in the building trade but worked his way up into uh, the, the gold trade and is worth millions as mm. as the series uh, opens. Can you be worth enough millions uh, is, is the question. <laughs> uh, and of course, he has the reputation so the Raiders don't know what to do with this gold who will we talk to we'll talk to Kenny Noy
0: and here they are then two of the gang gang, Brian Robinson played by Frankie Wilson and Mickey McAvoy played by Adam Nagaitis and they're meeting with Kenny Noy the Jack Loudon character uh, to see if he can shift the gold for them I wouldn't want to be trying to get this fella to sell a pair of shoes for me he's a slippery piece of business
3: what were you expecting the yeah that would have been easier So our friend says you can shift it. I can shift it. Bollocks he can. They say you're a builder who fences hooky watches. No, they don't say that, I say that. Because who would bother watching a builder who fences hooky watches? If you could handle a job like this, then I'd have heard of you. You only hear about the people who get caught. (sighs) It is crazy, Mickey. It's our score, we can do it ourselves. How? How would you do it? Well, we're all villains. We all know fences. Oh, yeah? Who do you know who could handle that? I broke in Basil on, he's got a pawn shop, he owes me a favour. That's three ton of pure gold that you've taken out the market and brought to a lock up in South London. And now you need to take it out of a lock-up in South London and get it back into the market without anyone noticing. There's two people in England who know how to do that and neither of us live in Basildon.
0: That's Jack Lowden as Kenny Noy, the fence who knows how to get rid of the gold for them um, the, the, the them in question being uh, Frankie Wilson and Adam Nogaitis as the two characters, Brian Robinson and Mickey McAvoy, who unwittingly managed to get uh, 26 million pounds worth of gold into the back of their van. It's an extraordinary characterization from, from Loudon he's very important in this and, and the connections that he has bring us into a very murky world of very wealthy people uh, White collar crime. Who can get who can get that money
2: into the system
0: for them? All kinds of questions need to be solved.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the that the phrase there. Getting the, the gold back into the market without anyone noticing. That's the crucial element in, and that's nearly the yeah. end of episode one, and it drives the next five episodes of the six parter. We get a number of characters <clears throat> from all strata of society, as you say. One of them is uh, John Palmer, who's played by Tom Cullen. He's a smelter of gold and who left school at the age of 12. He has a talent for gold. That's his, and he kind of, you know, he, he buys cheap gold, melts it down, sells it in crude gold ingots. But he has his own private smelter in his back garden of his rural mansion, if if you don't mind. So he's one example. Uh, Edwin Cooper, who is a solicitor who's from the Rotherhide. Uh, area in London, which is very deprived of so what, has clambered his way up the social ladder via two other wives. He's now married to. Um married into an upper class family.
0: Yeah, and Bruce Bradley actually plays his and, his wife yeah, and he's so. terrific
2: in in the role. Um, but he he's he can provide the legal means by which the money can be laundered. He can mm. set up bank accounts in Liechtenstein and Switzerland and so forth. Another example, Sean Harris uh, plays Parry who's a brilliant character, a gangland fixer. He's a kind of guy who floats between the villains of South London and and the, 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 the you know the the, the 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 Edwin Coopers and the John Palmers of of the story and he's always there in the background pulling strings and in fact he's the guy who has the big who has the big picture he's the guy who has the vision um, and, and, and we're told early on really where the gold disappears to it doesn't disappear into thin air and in fact we get to see it in London yeah. skyline uh, today, Yeah, wow. <laughs> because
0: they kind of tease you with that with the little caption at the beginning. Yes, indeed. If, if you've bought gold in the last 20 years or whatever, since 1983 in, in England, you've probably bought something with a bit of Brink's mat gold in yes, it. Yes, indeed. And there is another uh, sta- as kind of strand to the story as well, which is the police investigating it. Hugh Bonneville uh, is playing this character, Brian Boyce, doesn't want to be doing this job at all, but he is. And and uh, Nikki Jennings is a young, one of the few female uh, police officers involved in uh, the, 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 what squad is it called? The uh, Flying the Squad. The Flying Squad, yeah. And, and also we have um, the t- character of Tom Brightwell. Uh, and here they are interrogating one of the guards who they think has been involved, uh, you know, because how did the guys get in there? How did they get all the codes? How did they know everybody's name? So this is the interrogation. And I think uh, the first voice that you'll hear here, in fact, is the Tom Brightwell, the, the, the police officer.
4: Surely you're not married to Brian Robinson's sister. You ain't the only one
3: from Robert, Robert. We didn't have garden. But how <laughs> did that work then, Robert? You got the job at Brinks, Matt, and suddenly Robinson's your best pal. A few nights at the pub, a bit of warming up. Then the question started. I want a lawyer. There's a clock. Robert. And it's ticking. And every time it ticks, this thing you're in gets worse. It's bad already. But it gets worse. You can stop the clock. Stop the ticking. Just tell us what you've done. Tell us about you and Brian Robinson. I want a lawyer. I didn't want this job, Robert. But you don't turn down a promotion, and apparently this is a promotion. I didn't want this job because of people like you. I've seen you before. A hundred times. And it becomes slightly dispiriting sitting in rooms like this with people like you, stupid people, Robert. Stupid, greedy people who get promised the world and always end up the same, skinned, scared and looking at me.
0: As Hugh Bonneville there, as Brian Boyce. Indeed, the first voice that you heard, of course, was not Tim Brightwell. It was the character of Nikki Jennings, the female cop, played by uh, Charlotte Spencer, who's fabulous in this and kind of has a, a, a dodgy background in her, or ba- family background in terms of criminality as well. She's clean as a wisp, certainly she seems that way in episode one that I saw. And the, the Hugh Bonneville character is an interesting uh, piece of casting there.
2: Declan. Yeah, I was a wee bit surprised when I saw him, but uh, I think inspired because the character he's playing, uh, DCI Brian Boyce, as you suggested at the start, he doesn't want the job. <laughs> Nobody wants, this is, this is a poison chalice, this job. But he goes, he's, he's old school. He, he's ex-army. He served in Cyprus back in the 1950s, risen through the ranks. He served in counter-terrorism ter- counter yeah. in Northern Ireland. So he has been through the mill and probably despite his plummy tones, that we can hear there, he's very, he's very old school. As I say, he's very upright, very moral, very uncorruptible. So when he meets with the villains, who might be expecting that kind of grudging respect that coppers used to give villains, you know, oh, mm. he was a good old villain. Yeah. That kind. Wicked. None yeah. of that. No with, ODC, with no ordinary voice. decent criminal here. No ordinary decent that. criminal. Absolutely.
0: The other important aspect of this is the period in which it's set. It's 1983. We're at the high, we're in Thatcher's Britain, and the Docklands development is very much part of the story here.
2: It, it is. In, in its very, very early stages, um, as I said, the character, Parry, who is from, you know, South London, and he's looking around and he has seen his, his world has been abandoned and, uh, and left behind by what appears to be an economic miracle. And he's thinking, you know, what if? What if I can do something with my own turf? Parry Mm -hmm. is a guy who doesn't have money, but he knows people who does money. But you're right about the Thatcherism, the concept of Thatcherism is probably as important as the actual physical docklands that emerges from the money of of the the Brinks-Mass heist because this idea of a classless society and class is very important in this series. You know, whether you're born into it, whether you aspire to it, whether you're entitled to buy your way into it. That idea of the uh, the promise of a classless society that Margaret Thatcher offered, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from so long as you can pay your way. And the villains of the piece in this, they take her at her word. Mm. And they say, well, we've got the money, we're coming yeah, for we're, the system. We're going
0: to pay our way. Um, this is a true crime series. How does it manage that balance between, you're a writer of crime, of crime fiction yourself, Declan, how does it manage that balance between, you know, what you need to get a, a fiction going and what you need to tell a true crime story? Because it is fiction, it's, it's dramatised.
2: It, it's very much dramatised and, and if anyone wants to kind of read around the, the, the real life characters who are involved, they'll probably find that the writers have been a wee bit generous mm-hmm. to the particularly the villains of the piece that they're maybe nowhere as generous in spirit in real life as they are portrayed in in the film the character of Kenny Noy particularly not a man you want to meet Jack (coughs) Um, Laughan character And the Jack Laugan character. Um, But this is a six-part series. They're trying to... It's a big ensemble cast. We've only really mentioned about half the actors. Fine performances all around. They're trying to say an awful lot. They're trying to blend classic kind of cops and robbers story into a much more complex story of what is what wealth does to not just an yeah. entire society but to an entire city especially all that illicit wealth I think they've done a terrific job well, here they had, they had to follow Happy Valley up in some
0: <laughs> big way didn't they
2: they've certainly done it here they, they had they, it was a big hole to fill and they've certainly filled it I inhaled the six episodes in two separate sittings I thought it was absolutely wonderful um, and one of the best things I think the BBC have done in years oh
0: well, there you go and the rest of us will have to wait and watch it weekly because um, you were lucky enough to get the, the, the six Six preview episodes. That's Bark telling us about The Gold. It begins on BBC One, 9pm this Sunday, February 12th. And so to our album reviews on this uh, Friday evening. First up, one of Ireland's most distinctive voices, that of the widely acclaimed Irish folk singer from County Cavan, Lisa O'Neill. We interviewed her earlier this week about her new album, All of This Is Chance. It's out today. The reviews so far have been overwhelmingly positive. Let's hear what our arena panel think. Next up, another Irish offering, this time from County Westmead, the young Irish band called The Academic. Over the last few years, they've supported the likes of Noel Gallagher, The Rolling Stones, and their latest album is entitled Sitting Pretty. And it is, they say, a reflection on navigating through life in your 20s. And finally, originally formed in 2004, when some of the members were as young as 12 years old. Paramore are an alternative rock or punk band from the United States, revolving principally around their lead singer Haley Williams, huge in their homeland, yet really to transition to megastardom internationally will this latest album which is called This Is Why will that do the uh, transformation for them Pat Carty and Aoife Barry have been listening to all three we'll start with Lisa O'Neill and this is how the album which is called All Of This Is Chance opens with the title track
3: In the bottom of a ditch Under two coulters crossed in Christ's name Be easy Come with me Imagination into this iron house and we'll watch from the doorway the years run back
0: there is the invitation from Lisa O'Neill on the opening track of our album Come With Me Imagination uh, and that is uh, the opening section of all of this is Chance opening and title track from Lisa O'Neill's new album. Um, I spoke to Lisa during the week about this Aoife, Aoife Barry and Pat Carty as I said our reviewers, reviewers this evening and obviously Patrick Kavanagh's mm. The Great Hunger was a was a big inspiration. Those are the yeah. words that we're hearing at, at the top of that. Mm-hmm. Where, that poem sets up the kind of themes that I think she's looking at here. Um,
4: yeah. Definitely, and she, it was interesting because she was commissioned by the Abbey to do a piece in about 2021 based on that. Uh, yeah, on she the was, great there hunger. was a big
0: there was a big outdoor uh, yeah
4: in in Emma yeah, performance. In Emma and she was part so, of that. Yeah, exactly. And so she definitely, you know, based on this, appears to have been really influenced by that. I think in in terms of obviously using the lines from it, but then I think mm. also the imagery that comes through it. It's this really, um, you know, earthy. Like I kept picturing, you know, like rolling hills and, and kind of dark, you know, dark woods, and just you know, it's very, You're it's about very beautiful, Monaghan, aren't beautiful you? Monaghan. I know exactly yeah. one of her board counties. Um, you know, it's really earthy. I suppose is the word I would use. And mm. she really brings you back. I feel like she's, you know, she's saying, "Come with me." She's taking you on a journey. She's like a great poet does. You know, takes you on this journey, gives you these, you know, images, gives you these feelings and emotions. And because so much of her work is rooted in her Cavan accent, in her presence yeah. as a as a singer. Or i feel like when you really connect with that and i really do connect with her vocals i really love them um you're just brought on this really irish journey with her and i think she she minds a lot of you know places lyrically in it you know she brings you to these kind of natural worlds she brings you to where birds are but she also brings you to like the human spirit and makes you question she talks about am I happy being alive would I rather be dead you know she brings these real existential questions too so it's kind of both on the ground and then up in the in the kind of spirit world at the same time although
0: I think Pat I I can see there's a lot of nodding and some of it in agreement that that makes me want to go and listen to the record again that was fantastic (laughs) sorry go ahead yeah but yeah there's an aspect to Lisa O'Neill's voice and then there's no point and running away from it some people love Lisa O'Neill's voice and the kind of for me they, it brings you to this ancient place that you don't quite know where it is and for other people it just doesn't work for them where, are you in either of those camps? Well
5: I've heard the word Marmite twice since I arrived here this evening you yeah. said it to me and Aoife said it to me as well and I think that's a fair description of it when I heard this record first now obviously I'd heard Lisa O'Neill before um, it was the voice that, that I found jarring and uh, and it's it's uh, you mentioned her Cavan her accent not I, I can't really give it a bit of a Cavan accent coming from the Midlands myself but anyway <laughs> the um it is jarring and when you listen to these songs and these are great songs but it's it's the way that she uses her voice that sometimes it's it's almost strangled sometimes it's, it's it goes a bit flat almost you know but it's just that style of singing so if you can get around that you know, either, yeah. either as you
0: say, you either love it or you don't. And, it, it, but there is, there is a lot of instrumentation on this album that wasn't there before, and this is Rough Trade, is the is mm-hmm. she, is this, mm-hmm. her first record with a, a big label, and I would say there was money to spend here that maybe she didn't have before. Does that not make it more accessible? No, it than perhaps it, it, they, it does. It and as been I say, you know, I,
5: I, I had to work with this one. I had to work hard with this one because when I heard it first, as I say, I wasn't crazy, about mm. it. but but um, it has grown on me because, uh, yeah, the the instrumentation is is beautiful on some of it. Um, the the way, say, there's um, the fiddle combines with our banjo and things yeah. like that, and yeah. there's these drones, Sorry. thing, drone things that are set up, which oh, is very much a part of it. Big bass
0: harmonium in there, uh, uh, perhaps you know, the, the kind well. of thing,
5: the kind of thing you'd hear on 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 Tom White's records and things like yeah. that, mm. that. That uh, is there, and and once once you start to acclimatise yourself to that, uh, you start to the voice starts to make more sense because it does really sit into that and it's, you know, another instrument in that.
3: Yeah.
0: So you can take it that way. And they, they, obviously the Great Hunger is a big, it's an epic poem that takes you on a big yeah. trip, really. Uh, if it is, is, Does the same happen across the, is it nine tracks in total on the album? Think it nine, is nine? Yeah, yeah. It's, a short,
4: it's a short enough album, but she does well, well, Some go, of them are quite long, the Some songs, of them are quite so, long. Yeah. That is true, exactly. There are a lot of epic songs on this and she yeah. does take you on, on a journey. And I mean, you know, she has these, these beautiful lines like in, in the final song where she says um, settle your head pet send your bones to sleep so she's bringing you know, She's bringing you along with her she's bringing you these fairy tales these traditional songs and she really reminds me a lot of Karen Dalton the American folk singer musician who also has a voice that's really distinctive and really unusual but it just tells a story in itself by like just existing so yeah. the fact that Lisa O'Neill then also brings you these beautiful lyrics and musically brings you those gorgeous drones you know takes you to places where you're almost like waiting for those bass notes to come in on that, on that particular track which is heard there, the opening song, and I just feel like there's a lot of spirits in this album. Right. It, it's not hugely dynamic. There's not like these like quiet loud moments in it yeah. or anything. So you do have to settle into that, and yeah. that might be a challenge for some people. But it's also really enjoyable when you get in there. Right, too.
0: let's listen to a, a bit of, from a bit of a track called uh, "Birdie from Another Realm."
3: Birdie from another realm. color mm.
0: Just a little, um, just a little flavour there of birdie for another um, from another um I beg your pardon, from Lise O'Neill's album "All of This Is Chance." Starting with the, the bareness of the guitar and that talk about the, the peacock, then it moves on to talk about a cuckoo later on. Pat, I think you're kind of are you beginning to give in? Well, we do you want
5: do you want to a folk history lesson? <coughs> like the the, the cuckoo is a pretty bird, right? You can find an example of that lyric in the in a library in Oxford from the 18th century and it goes further back beyond that and people like Bob Dylan have used that in the lyric Mm. Uh, I saw Robert Plant at Christmas singing Cuckoo his version of that so it's kind of based on that so she's very much plugged into this folk tradition mm, and really, yeah. you know, I think the thing here is, you know, even if, 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 if I might find the, the voice a bit jarring, you have to take your hat off to her. She's doing her own thing and it really is, you know, it is a special record and if, you know, you'd have to be in the mood for it. I joked there while it was on, I was waiting for the drummer to come in, that wasn't fair, that wasn't a fair thing to say. But, um, you know, th- there's a lot going on here uh, as regards... History, as regards, as Aoife was saying, you know, that it sets up this mood, that there's ghosts on this album. There's a lot going yeah. on here, and I think that as I listen to it more and more, I'm getting more yeah. out of it.
0: Right, stars, if you would, Pat.
5: Uh, I'm going to give it uh, three. Three. And, uh, you know, if you come back to me next week, maybe I'll change It'll that. Be, it might be moving. <laughs> what are you saying? I, if
4: a, a, solid four, a solid four out of five. I mean, she's really, she's an artist, you know, she's beyond a singer. Um, she's an artist. And some people might love that mm. art. Some people might might not be as into it. But what she's doing is purely unique and her own. And that's why people respond to it so strongly.
0: All right, four from you. Let's move on then to the second Irish act that we're reviewing this evening, The Academic. Uh, Sitting Pretty is a new album from the Westmeath uh, Band. You don't have to wait too long for the drummer here Pat and will be a little whack of it right away from the, With the song This Is Your Life
3: And I can be the tonight
0: is your life from The Academic and their new album Sitting Pretty um, Pat you, you, you look a lot happier and I just wonder is it that yeah, we've you know, gone it's from Cavan <laughs> down to Westmead that we're getting close to Offaly now and therefore your bias is going to come out um, <laughs> I don't get paid to be an ambassador for the Midlands <laughs> yeah. but if
4: somebody wanted to you'd be delighted
0: but, but there was my ad for it um, The Academic formed uh, uh, they were still at school these mm. like, and they're, they're now in their 20s and they're talking about singing songs like This Is Your Life but they, they know how to get a pop a power pop hook and Listen. whack out the song. What have they achieved um, uh, since they formed in 2013? In well, 20 yeah, 2013,
5: ago? they were still still in school. But 2016, they put out an EP called Loose Friends, and there was a song on that called Different, which was a big radio hit at the time, mm. and, uh, and, and rightly so. And then on the strength of that, they booked Vicar Street when nobody thought they could do it, sold it out. Uh, then they put out a thing called Mixtape 2003, another great song. And then their debut album came out in... Uh, 2018 Tales from the back seat, and it was full of stuff like that pop songs yeah. from end to end and what's wrong with that they were able to sell out uh, the Ivy Gardens based on that uh, a little band called the Rolling Stones must have heard it and asked them to support them in Crow Park and they just played everywhere all over yeah. the world. And then they come to this. Now, if Tales from the Backseat was uh, about um, drinking lemonade and looking for fake IDs, this is the grown <laughs> up. Yeah,
0: yeah you know? they're, they're, they're in, adults now. Yeah, someone buys a house in
5: the middle of this. Album. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> there's
0: the, they, they said, if it didn't, they? that the album is about navigating life in their 20s. And sometimes yeah. they're having a good time doing that and saying this is great I ha-, you know, yeah. this is my life and off we go and sometimes it's well you're yeah, going to get your heart broken in your 20s Yeah, like, join the club
4: exactly uh, you know? yeah um, they do and even in the song you just played there the, mm-hmm. one of the lyrics was "Oh, um, is it okay if I say I'm not feeling alright I don't think you would have got like 25 year old rockers saying that in the 60s Like, <laughs> you know what I <laughs> yeah. mean so you got to appreciate that they are like products of their generation yeah. which is really nice that they like wear their hearts on their sleeve um, and what was really interesting for me listening to this was they're not really a band that I was hugely familiar with mm-hmm. and for some reason I thought they were a lot like heavier Rockoys than they are but as I was listening I was kind of going okay we've got Queens of the Stone Age there in the opening track uh, Band of My My Generation we got the Rolling Stones oh, I've got a prim- bit of Primal Scream there oh, mm. I've got a f- bit of Fountains that's of Wayne you, in there the, That's just the Rolling Stones Yeah exactly the track, the Stones. <laughs> Exactly they all sound like the Rolling Stones Exactly uh, We can go all the way back to the originals but and then, then I, when I was hearing the Power Pop the Fountains of Wayne stuff coming out um, mm. you know I was thinking oh okay interesting they're a band that I didn't realise they would be so switched on to that Power yeah. Pop yeah. and to do that so yeah. well um, and they're very well produced very slick sounding but not surprising that there's a lot of radio play going on with I'm their not stuff.
0: surprising that and I'm glad that they're saying to their fellow 20 year olds do what you want it's an important bit of advice and it's good for them to be in a song let's have a listen I definitely
1: do you don't have to talk about the future think that one and one was two. I used to dream that I would never break the roof.
0: Let us be clear. It's okay for a 20-year-old to give a 20-year-old that piece of advice. You don't have to think about the future. Uh, as a parent of potential 20-year-olds, you do have to think about the future. Pat, but you know, it's, it's hard not to smile and, be, and, and feel in a good mood when you're listening to this.
5: But this is the thing. What's wrong What's wrong with pop songs? You know, they're, right, they're not reinventing the wheel, but let's remember that if you put a cart on top of a wheel, it goes down a hill. And if you <laughs> turn it into a square, it doesn't go down the hill properly. So wheels are good the way they are. Um, this is just great pop songs and they're a great live band and people like them all over the world and as we were saying yeah. there a record company executive hears that and has to be rubbing their hands together Is there a, a development
0: been... here uh, from previous work and stars as we finish past Previous work and stars well they were always great at writing pop songs and they've just got better at it So, so it's, it's just a bit better than it was a bit, well, the
5: Second album syndrome they're laughing in the face of it Yeah Julie um, Lipa's
4: producer yeah. produced this as well so yeah. like you know Yeah great, great sounds
5: great great, great variety of arrangements I happy. give it I give it 4 out of 5 I think
0: 4 out of 5 uh, Eva.
4: I like this more than I thought I would because I just really love Power Pop um, but I gave it th- three and a half stars I mean like not reinventing the wheel but they don't sound like an Irish band like they really are doing a really got a very American t- American sound that's not a bad thing but <laughs> like they do sound very American large
0: so. parts of three America and in Westmeath yeah. i big yeah, to all knew? of Westmeath for saying who that knew? okay so three and a half and four, four was it you said four yeah. oh yeah, yeah strong, strong four. Okay. <laughs> right let us move on then to Paramore uh, American rock band from Tennessee, formed in 2004, kept going since, despite a revolving cast. This is their sixth album, their first in two seven since 2017. It's called "This Is Why," which is also the name of this track. There we go This is why Opening and title track From the new Paramore album Who are we talking about When we talk about Paramore To a certain extent You know I said the revolving cast Haley Williams is the, is the important is yeah. the, the linking factor here Isn't she The exactly. vocalist The uh, vocalist
4: Yeah I mean they've been going For about six albums They're originally from Tennessee Like you were saying earlier Founded in around 2005 mm. And they were just We children Well, some of us were Adults living our uh, Academic adult lives um, At the moment The trio are Zac Farrow Taylor York And Haley Williams Now there have been Some kind of rotation of members during the year, during the years, some of them going coming in and out. Mm. Um, they took a bit of an extended break during the pandemic period, and Haley Williams divorced her husband and went through kind of an extended period of going through therapy for things like PTSD. So she was dealing with a lot, but also brought out solo um, records herself. And now the band have come back with kind of a new newish lineup, and this is them kind of saying, "We're back. You know, yeah. we are in a good headspace. We're making new music." As you can hear, it sounds very upbeat. Uh, as a result, yeah, and it
0: is upbeat for uh, for quite a bit of the album until we get down to awards. They think the track eight and track ten on the list. In fact, a, a song called "Liar" and a song as the, the last song in the album called "Thick Skull." When I thought, "Oh, they've stopped jangling and and kind of bopping along, and they're really saying something here," but it's only on those two tracks. Pat, am yeah, I am I a downer? Yeah. Am I downing your Friday night? Well,
5: no, no uh, "Thick Skull" right is is a good example. Then I thought that started off interesting, and then it kind of. Has this sludge of alt rock guitars poured (laughs) over the top of it uh, as if they're tarmac in a drive, you know, and uh, (laughs) it's
4: quite low key at the start, isn't it? You think it's going to be really revealing that that song
5: that we heard there. I thought that was the best thing on it, but I thought there was other stuff there and it it could have been anybody. It's this kind of combination of, uh, you know, bands like Block Party and Foles and and even God help us a a bit of Red Hot Chili Peppers. I could hear a bit in there, you know, which is death to anybody. it, it didn't do an awful lot for me Sean um, like overall you, yeah not, not as I said so I re- it was the, really I heard that single heard. Uh, when that, I think that came out last September or yeah. something like that. I remember thinking oh that's good um, but yeah it's. I mean she's she's got a good voice um, there's stuff there there's a song about um, that was apparently uh, inspired by um, Taylor uh, Swift hanging around with Taylor Swift about gifts the one where she's running out of time and you think oh yeah that's okay but it just yeah. it just didn't overall uh, right. didn't do an
0: awful lot for me. well let's <laughs> Yeah, a, too old Sean yeah, maybe been too old let's play a little bit of a track called Say Come Sa
1: in a single year I've aged 100 my son
3: very
0: dangerous to have a track of Sick Ops <laughs> on <laughs> your album isn't it you know you're kind of you're yeah. writing the headline review aren't you
4: Yeah you kind of are and, and I think what's interesting though with, with the band Musically you know you're mentioning some references there and I kept hearing a lot of New Wave post-punk inferences in this you know Talking Heads Gang of Four um, that were also mixed with the emo of the early 2000s yeah. emo which is really unusual but it, I didn't really know much about Paramore at all so go, I went into this quite blind they're a band that I deliberately kind of ignored but so I was actually kind of mm. impressed by what I heard then, thinking, oh, their fans are actually going to really love this. And the
0: musicianship, it has to be said, the musicianship here, Pat, if, if whatever you think about the lyrics yeah, yeah. and the, the kind of the jangly nature of the, the, the candy pop, it, yeah. the, the musicianship is, is yeah, notable. Yeah, the, the, bass,
5: the bass player is, is, is very good on some of these songs. There's a lot of syncopation going on, yeah, which is jazzy, yeah, bass, yeah, which yeah. is a sound of a band playing together properly. You know, it's not easy stuff to do. Hmm. Just didn't really grab me, Sean, you know, it's oh, right. it's it, it, it just kind of floated past a lot of it and didn't really do it Alright Yeah. Were you
0: Were you grabbed at all
4: um, More than think? I thought I would be I mean I wasn't someone Who had like an emo fringe Back in the early 2000s Or anything <laughs> uh, yeah. So you know But I mean Look I do love the old New Wave sound So those moments Really grabbed me I thought Hayley Williams Is a very strong voice too yeah. So yeah
0: Okay Stars At 3.5 3.5
4: Yeah mm. Pat
5: By the early 2000s My fringe was disappearing Over <laughs> the hill Sean uh, I'd give this uh, A 2 2 <laughs> To, and that's for the title track because
0: I think all that's right, the it. title track was, was what it's getting for this is why the title of the Paramore album Sitting Pretty from the Academic and all of this is chance from Lisa O'Neill bringing our week to a close here on Arena um, uh, who, who yes Amandine Passa-Divine uh, Leah Murphy and Paula Shields were the researchers this evening Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator Shilini Vale was on sound and tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan back with you here on RT Radio 1 on Monday 7 o'clock with you on Lyric FM at one o'clock on Sunday afternoon do join me there I found a lovely version of a Burt Backrock song that I don't think people will have heard so there you will be playing that on Sunday afternoon that and more uh, Sunday afternoon back with you as I say on Monday John Crean will be with you here on RT Radio 1 after the news